Welcome to the Kingsway Christian Fellowship. We hope that you'll be blessed as you listen to this audio sermon streamed live from Melbourne, Australia. Kingsway Christian Fellowship is a family Bible-based non-denominational church preaching Jesus Christ, based in Wonturner. Visit www.kingswaychristianfellowship.com. Now here's Pastor Gary. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Now, having made mention of the baptism, and we were talking about baptism, water baptism in our uh, meeting recently, and so it was kind of pointed out that maybe we should um, uh, preach on it, minister, speak on it. And so it is. It's one of those um, topics that you every now and then you have to come back to. I looked, saw in my notes it was something I touched upon back in 2014. So it's been like six, seven years. So, um, so we're going to go through some aspects in Scripture this morning that relate to the doctrine and teaching of water baptism in the Bible. Now, again, this may be for some familiar text to some, but nevertheless, uh, it's something that we need to continue to preach and to proclaim. And it's always refreshing when you identify with these glorious truths of Scripture. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. So obviously we'll go to a few different Scriptures as we progress, but we can work through them as we go along. And so... The point that I want to make firstly this morning is that water baptism is a very significant issue or topic or doctrine, uh, really technically, in the Bible. I mean, it's not something that is a secondary issue or a side issue. It is so fundamental. Water baptism is very, very significant. And so, um, and it must be understood and understood in its proper context, because there's a lot out there under the uh, under this whole banner of uh, water baptism, and, and and there's a lot of it that's not even biblical. It's not even according to the scriptures, and so it's important that we have a biblical understanding and framework for water baptism. And water baptism, though directly taught in the New Testament, it has um, uh, types in the Old Testament as well. So it's throughout the whole Bible. It's just not a New Testament concept. And so, as I mentioned, there is often confusion surrounding water baptism. There's often debate that surrounds water baptism in terms of what's acceptable, what's not, what does the Bible say, what it doesn't say, and so So you get the debate that revolves around infant baptisms. And so you have people that, uh, you know, babies born and some for some reason, you know, like like, uh, they never go to church, but they get married in a church and they never go to church, but they go to church for a christening, right? And somehow that is symbolic of water baptism, a christening, as some others would call it. And somehow that is, is, is what these required according to God. But you know that there's not one reference in the Bible to infant baptism. There's not one instruction to, to such a practice. It is a tradition of man, formulated by man, and obviously most, most pro- prominently through the Catholic Church. And that's it's got to do with the sacraments. It's got to do with their whole false teaching and doctrines that are associated with their practices. It's got no, nothing biblical whatsoever. Then there's, uh, um, uh, there's sometimes there's a question, well, what age should a person be baptised? Is there an appropriate age? Do we set like a, uh, an age um, specific as to, as to when it is, is to be done? Or, you know, if I was baptised, um, do I need to be rebaptized if I was christened? And these are questions and they're legitimate questions. They're things that need to be addressed and it's important that we understand. And so, as I said, it's significant. There are those that make an overemphasis of water baptism. You may have heard, come across, there's people that say, well, unless you're water baptised, you can't be saved. You've got to be water baptised. But again, that one's pretty easy to dismiss because uh, if that was the case, then Jesus, when he said to the the thief on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, he didn't get the chance to be water baptised, you know. So somehow we know that uh, quite clearly that uh, though it is central, that water baptism to the gospel message, it's not a prerequisite in that sense. It's faith that saves. Amen. 
by grace through faith. That's the principle and foundation. But again, baptism is there. It is central to the gospel message. It is something that is, uh, uh, is clearly instructed, as we'll see in the Bible. And so um, we don't want to make it a secondary issue. We don't want to make it less important than what the scripture does. And so we want to address it as it is seen and understood. Because when we preach the gospel this morning, not only are we preaching about God's grace, God's forgiveness, not only are we talking about uh, our, our salvation that is through Christ and his blood, but water baptism is part of the proclamation of the gospel. Now, understand that water baptism is so central to the gospel message that it forms part of the preaching of the gospel itself. And this is important to understand, as we will identify clearly in the scriptures this morning. See, water baptism is not, and I say it is not an option or an optional extra. It is, a fun, again, fundamental. It's foundational. Foundational. It is really one of the, or if the first step of obedience to the true disciple of Jesus Christ. If, if you say, I'm going to follow Jesus, then one of the first things in, uh, that needs to be addressed is water baptism. That's so significant. And so it is why I've chosen the text that I've chosen this morning. It is why Jesus himself, in giving the Great Commission, uses this and gives clear instruction in relation to water baptism in the Great Commission. I mean, the Great Commission is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And yet Jesus clearly states in that sentence, baptizing them. So it's prominent in the mind of God. It is clear instruction that comes from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. And so I want to consider the issue in two aspects this morning. I want to consider it in water baptism. I want to look at the practical, the practical aspects of water baptism, which is important. Then I want to consider the spiritual aspects. The two go hand in hand. And they are both extremely relevant. Sometimes people understand the practical aspects, but they don't comprehend the spiritual aspects. But if you don't understand the spiritual aspects, then it, then it kind of lessens the whole significance of the physical. Because you, the two come hand in hand. They go together. So we want to break it up into two aspects, the physical and the spiritual, and we want to consider it in the Word of God. So let's read our text in Matthew chapter 28. <clears throat> verse 19, that's the Great Commission, where Jesus speaks and he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age Amen. Now, it is clear, this is the great commission. This is Jesus himself after he has gone to the cross, after he has resurrected from the dead. This is before his ascension physically into heaven at the right hand of God. He's giving the final instructions to his disciples whom he has trained over the period of three years and he's commissioning them to go into all the world and to preach the gospel, as he calls it. Uh, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Now notice he says to make disciples. He doesn't say to make Christians. He doesn't say to make believers in that sense. But he says to make disciples. And the essence of a disciple, you know, and, and it's an actual, just quickly, I've said it before, I'll say it again, the word Christian appears three times in the New Testament. And there's something like, to be exact, I can't remember, but it's close to 300 references to the word disciple. Because the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And so the issue is, is, is disciples. And so Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. 
And the characteristic of a disciple this morning is a one who is a follower of Jesus Christ, one who is a learner, one who is a student. That's why in verse 20, he says, teaching them. That's what you do to a disciple. A disciple is a learner and a follower of Christ. And so we hear and we understand the will of God, the instructions of our Lord, the commands of God, and then we're teaching, we're teaching people to observe these things. And one of the primary instructions of our Lord in the Great Commission is baptism. Think about that. Why did he even have to say that? He just could have left that bit out. Why is water baptism so significant? It's mentioned in the Great Commission. And we'll touch upon that and we'll see its significance a little later. But it is important. So baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see... In light of our Lord's commands, now you've got to understand, having the Great Commission, this is prominent now in the minds of the disciples. It's been lodged in their understanding. The instruction is sitting at the, at, at, at the, uh, you know, the top of the list of things to do. When, you know, if I'm going to make a disciple, oh, quickly, I've got to baptise them, right? So on the day of Pentecost, when the church is birthed, in Acts chapter 2, you can turn there, actually, or come up on the screen, whichever, But you find in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the first sermon and the the church is being birthed and under the inspiration as the Holy Spirit is poured out on that day, the Bible says that they were convicted or they were cut to the heart after they heard Peter preach. And so they said, what must we do? They said to Peter, what must we do to be saved? Now let's look at the response of Peter, and uh, make it uh, clear as we read it, uh, rather than just quote it, but Peter is clear. In verse <coughs> 37, we'll read from Acts 2, verse 37. So when they heard this, that is Peter, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So the instruction, well, tell us, what do we need to do? And so what does does Peter say in verse 38? Then Peter said to him, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. Now, baptism is the reason why Peter is so quick to put this in that statement is because no doubt it was seated in there by the Lord himself. The, 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 the prominence of that uh, becoming, you know, uh, he could have just said, as you know, Paul would write about the gospel, for example, and he would explain it to us in the book of Romans, uh, and he would say, so believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Because in essence, that's the simplicity of salvation, right? It's faith, believe. But yet, in light of this, the command is obviously to, is, is in relation to repentance, but also that which relates to baptism. And so he's instructing them to be water baptised. And you know what's interesting? Baptism in the Bible, especially in the book of Acts, it, is, it, is in, it happens immediately after one's profession of faith in Christ. You can trace this through the book of Acts. Actually, I want to demonstrate it to you because this is the response to one who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he says to them, repent and be baptized. And the Bible says 3,000 souls were saved that day. In other words, 3,000 people were baptized. So let's look a little bit further at this. In Acts chapter 8, you have the story. And um, uh, again... You have, um, uh, what's his name? Philip, isn't it? Philip, yes. So Philip is, uh, is instructed by God. There's, a, there's an Ethiopian Enoch, as we know him. And so he's a prominent man and he's in his carriage there being carted along. And the Bible tells us that he's reading the book of Isaiah. 
And so the Spirit of God speaks to Philip and says, come up to him and, uh, and go to him. And so Philip goes to him and sees him reading uh, in Isaiah 53. Uh, as, um, uh, the words that are spoken there as a sheep led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. And so he said, who's this regarding? And so it's a perfect platform to preach the gospel. So P- uh, Philip shares with him the gospel. And so in doing so, he preaches Christ to him. Now let's pick it up in verse 35 of Acts chapter 8. It says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. Now, why is it that water is coming into the equation here? (laughs) I mean, he's preaching Christ, and now we're talking about there's some water at the side of the road. Then Philip opened his, uh, in verse 36, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the Enoch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Do you know why the Enoch said it? Because Philip told him that he had to be baptized. Part of the presentation of the gospel was to be baptized. This is the command of Christ in the Great Commission. And so here's the Ethiopian. As he passes water, he sees the water, the river there, and he says to Philip, well, uh, here's some water. What stops me from being baptized now? And Peter, uh, Philip doesn't say, oh, well, let's just wait a moment or let's prolong this and, and so forth. Peter's response in the Bible, I mean, sorry, Philip's response is, if you believe with all your heart, then you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the Enoch went down into the water and he baptised him. Immediate baptism on profession of faith. Because the whole reason why is because Philip presented the gospel and he preached water baptism. That's why. You can go now to Acts chapter 10. We have now the first example of Cornelius, a Gentile, and the gospel's going to the Gentiles and Cornelius is having a meeting with Peter and we won't go into all the story, but again, I want to highlight that Cornelius and his family is hearing the preaching of Christ. And in Acts, uh, again, Acts 10, verse 44, it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak tongues with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, now what's the, what's the response of all of this? I'll praise the Lord. Listen to Peter's response. Can anyone forbid water? Why has he gone there? Can anyone forbid water? That, there should, that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they asked him to stay a few days. So immediately after the Holy Spirit has fallen and there is evidence of salvation in these individuals, he says, well, what's forbidding them from now being baptized? So he commanded them to be baptized now. Again, see how prominent it is in the mind of the apostles? See how central it is to the presentation and proclamation of the gospel message? And so... We see this pattern. I just want to bring your attention to one more. There's a couple more, but I just want to bring your attention to one more. And it's found in Acts chapter 16. It's the Philippian jailer. And here it is. You know the story. Paul's in prison and, uh, he's, uh, uh, and, and, and Silas and they're praying and singing hymns to God, the Bible tells us. And so there's a great earthquake in the middle of the night and the chains fall off and there's chaos because everyone's being set free and Paul's being set free and the Philippian jailer is overcome by the circumstances and he knows that he's going to be held responsible and so his response is he's about to uh, uh, kill himself. And so the Bible says, now listen to this in verse 31. So they said, this is oh, actually verse 30, because they brought them out and he said, 
This is the Philippian jailer. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Now notice the response. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Now notice the emphasis is clear here, faith, okay? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's, that's the nature of the gospel. You believe. We established this. But again, right on the back of this is again the emphasis of baptism. It says in verse 32, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Immediately. And so I say all that to illustrate the practical application of water baptism in terms of the proclamation of the gospel, one's profession of faith in Christ Jesus. You see clearly, I've just shown you the scriptures. This is what the Bible's teaching us, and it is important that we acknowledge this pattern because this pattern is in direct correlation to the Great Commission. It's in direct correlation to the instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ that he gave to the apostles. And isn't it interesting that in all of that, there's not one instance of, or note of, water, of infant baptism. These people that were water baptized were of mature age. These were men and women. And I would say probably some teenagers in there too. And so when you, under, when you begin to see that, you begin to understand that, that they were of an age where we're dealing with people who were evidence of their profession of faith. They were of a mature age. They were able to choose for themselves uh, the Lord Jesus Christ to become a believer and be his disciple. That's when they were baptised. So this brings us to the other, another question, practically speaking, is what age then can or should someone be baptised? What, what, what's the... What age? Because one thing that I have seen and observed is that you can baptise people too young. I do believe that that is the case. I've seen it before, and, um, and uh, I, I no doubt that in, in good intent and good will, there's, uh, you can baptise people that are too young, and, and people that are under 10, they just really, they're just... For the most part, I just cannot see that they have a full comprehension of these, some of these spiritual realities that we're, dealing, we're going to be dealing with. But, and I say but, what is a good measuring stick then in relation to this? Because how do you know if someone is, to, is, is, is ready to be baptised? In talking about now people that, specifically, people that grow up in Christian homes, as for, for an example. What age? Well, I would suggest to you this, this morning that if, the, if uh, as, ch as children grow up into teenagers, they begin to exercise their level of independence, don't, do they not? Do they begin to make choices for themselves? Now, I'm not saying they're fully independent. I'm not saying they have full freedom. They're still under your roof and there's, a, there's an aspect there. But they are now beginning to exercise their freedom of will and freedom of choice. And so I can't tell you. I mean, Jesus was 12 years old and he was with the, uh, 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 the people in the temple and uh, they were amazed at him. And then I've seen 12-year-olds and they're still in nappies. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's not a hard and fast rule. But you've got to be able to assess independently certain circumstances and individuals because you can hinder someone from being baptised when they're ready to be baptised. And you can baptise someone when they're not ready to be baptised. So again, uh, but if you start setting hard and fast rules as to when, then you run into problems. I mean, nothing's perfect. But when you start setting down these rules and you have to be this, it has to be that, then you are missing the spirit of what is going on. My question then is how old do you have to be to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? You have, that's right. the right. The basis comes down to level of comprehension and understanding and demonstrating that in your life and in your understanding. And then really, you are, as that is assessed, then, then why hinder? Why forbid it? 
Because of a hard and fast rule? No. Because you have to judge it on its merit. And so this is important for us to consider these things because there's errors made in lots of ways. And I'm not saying there's any perfect way, but you must give uh, uh, emphasis and wait to what I'm saying this morning, this point that I'm, I'm, I'm making. Because there are, uh, there are clearly people that grow up in Christian homes and young teenagers, and they are intent. They want to serve the Lord. Then, and, and as parents and as, as a church, it's our responsibility to make sure that they are taught, to make sure that they are equipped, that to make sure that they do understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. Not just to take them through the ritual. And so make sure that there is that comprehension or, you know, if not a full comprehension, no one really has a full comprehension of what it means to be in Christ, as our brother talked about. This is something you grow into as a Christian through revelation and through God's uh, teaching us. But you need to understand some basic principles. This is the point that I'm making. And so um, if the individual is demonstrating that and they believe, you know, the, the Ethiopian says, well, what hinders me from being baptised? And Philip thought, he said, nothing. If you believe with all your heart, then let's do it. And so they proceeded. But you see, we, we, we have to see and give people the, individu- the individuality to decide freely for themselves. Because otherwise, if you cross that line and you start to... Um, uh, um, influence their will in, the, in matters that are beyond the age, then you're running yourself into some problems, I believe. And so um, that's why I make the point that there's no hard and fast rule concerning age. And in saying that, teenagers must be considered into this category of making a decision to serve the Lord. Amen. <laughs> What age? I don't know. That's, we, that, that's an individual basis. Those things have to be determined. But I'll leave it at that. Okay. But my, my, again, back to my point. If I just say this. If a person at a young age, as a teenager, can decide to follow Jesus and be his disciple, which do you believe they can? Then why wouldn't you baptise them? Why hinder them? Why hold them back? If they are exercising an independent will and, and you're seeing that their heart is there and it's, it's right and it's ripe, then do it. Don't withhold it. And so, again, let's move on. But baptism allows them to express their own profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're trying to do, isn't it? Raise, you, I mean, they obviously have to be born again and we have to uh, seek to identify these things. But nevertheless, um, that's what we're, 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 we're training them up in the Lord. So anyway, let's move on. What makes water baptism so important this morning? And I said to you before at the beginning that we were going to look at this practically, I think which we've done and covered a few things, but I want to now turn your attention to some spiritual aspects of water baptism because water baptism is water baptism. You get in the water, you get dipped in the water, you come out of the water and you're baptised. It's very simple. But you see the spiritual realities behind baptism, water baptism, are very, very important for us to understand because water baptism in and of itself is only symbolic. It is, in, it is obedience to the instruction of our Lord, but that's because of what, rep, what baptism actually represents and what it speaks of. And so you must understand the spiritual dimension and realities that concern this. And so uh, firstly, I just want to touch upon just a couple of little things before we get into some of the nitty gritty of it. But, you know, the Bible tells us that it is the answer of a good conscience before God. In, in 1 Peter chapter 3, and Peter is writing about Noah and the waters of Noah and of the, of the great flood. And then all of a sudden, Peter says these words in verse 20 of 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, There is also an antitype which now saves us. So he's talking about the water. He says, Baptism, 
Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I would say this to you. Uh, he's, he's using the issue of water and he's making the connection to baptism. And he's saying it's an anti-type. It's a type. It teaches us something. When he says these words, it's an answer of a good conscience before God. Why? You know what? It's very simple. That's why the Bible says that the Ethiopian, when he went down to the water and he got baptized, the Bible says he got up and he went away rejoicing. Why? Why did he go away rejoicing? Because his conscience was clear. He knew he had been forgiven of sins. He understood the sacrifice of Christ. And he knew he had obeyed the initial instructions of what the gospel was. And that is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be water baptized. That's why he was rejoicing. And, and it's always a re when people get baptized, you rejoice because you know you're doing what God wants you to do. You're obeying God. And there's nothing more satisfying than walking in obedience. <coughs> then there's another antitype we're told in the Bible as well in the Old Testament, not just Noah, but also uh, Moses and the Red Sea in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to the words of the scripture. In verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, this is Paul the Apostle, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, the Red Sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, the in the cloud and in the sea. So he's making a reference that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, they were, how could you be baptized in the cloud? Because there is a spiritual dimension to what's go, going on. But the issue of passing through the Red Sea, the waters, is a symbolic thing as well. In the Bible, it's also an anti-type. It's a type. It foreshadows something that, is, that was to come. And that is, relates to um, not just water baptism in the physical, but the spiritual realities that are associated with water baptism. See, I'm going somewhere, so stay with me. Because what I want to share with you in relation to this, if you don't understand it, then you're misunderstanding a foundational principle of the gospel. And Brother James touched upon it when he said that we are now in Christ. Just remember that. So, let's go to Romans chapter 6. Turn there. We're going to look at a few scriptures, so I want you to have your Bible on hand. Romans chapter 6. Now remember, when Peter was in the book of Acts and he preached in chapter 2 and he said, um, he said to them, repent and be baptized. But this is what he said. He says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Or in other words, for the forgiveness of your sins. And so, again, the issue of sin is central to the gospel message. Jesus died for our sins. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so you have this principle. And so it's for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. And so there's something in that that is to be clearly understood. Now, when Paul writes to the church at Rome, in chapter 6, he begins to pose a question because prior to that in chapter 5, he has just been talking about God's superabounding grace. How when sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And so we look at that and we think, gosh, God is so wonderful. His grace is so immense. It's so amazing that where sin abounds, God's grace abounds so much more. But you see, and, and, and it does. But Paul wanted to quickly put the brakes on. He quickly wanted to get their attention because in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, what shall we anticipated some of the thinking of people? What shall we say then? Verse 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Or in other words, if, if, if God's grace is put on display, if God's grace is glorified from my sin, then hey, why don't I just continue to sin? 
I mean, it's a really weird concept, isn't it? But that's how people think. And so people justify themselves, well, I can, I can continue in sin because I'm under God's grace. No, you are abusing God's grace. And so Paul is addressing this issue of sin. But the reason why I make the connection between Peter for the forgiveness of sins is in relation to water baptism. And then Paul is now addressing as a backdrop now to what he's about to speak on. He's, using the, he's speaking about the issue of shall we continue to live in sin? Shall we continue to practice sin? Not that we don't ever sin. We all sin. But we don't continue and practice habitually willful sin in that sense. Well, we shouldn't be. That's what he's saying. Now, in saying that, he says, as we looked, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And what's his response in verse 2? <laughs> Absolutely not. Certainly not. With an exclamation mark. Now, note what he says here in verse 2. How... Shall we who died, this is past tense, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, isn't it interesting? We're dealing with the issue of sin. It's, Paul says, wait a minute, you don't continue in sin because don't you understand that you have died to sin? And so how can you continue in it when you have died in it? How can you continue to live in it? If you've died to sin. Now, this is an interesting thought. Now, he goes on and he begins to address this. He says, you can't live that way. And in verse 2, he makes the fact that we cannot and we should not live in sin and practice sin. And then he goes on to verse 3. Listen carefully. He says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, isn't it interesting that Paul, as he talks about the issue of sin and practicing sin, he's making a reference now and he's drawing back to and pointing to water baptism. But you see, the problem is, is people look at this scripture and they only see the practical of water baptism. But Paul is speaking about water baptism, but he's highlighting not the literal, or he's, he's referring to the literal aspect of it, but he's drawing now upon the spiritual reality that's associated with baptism. And so he says, don't you know? Don't you understand that when you were baptised, what that meant, what it was symbolic of? What it represented to you, you were to be repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So you were forgiven of all your sins. And Christ, he, he sanctified you. He justified you. And now that you are in him, you've become the righteousness of God in him. How can you continue to live in sin? That's what Paul's saying. But listen to what he says in verse 3. He says, Therefore, uh, sorry, do you not know? That as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Do you know that when you were baptized, water baptism is an outward expression of what is happening inwardly, or should say, what has happened inwardly. Okay? It's, it's an outward expression of what has happened inwardly. Because if it hasn't happened inwardly, then you don't be baptized. And so this is what Paul's referring to. He's taking them back to water baptism and what it represented and the spiritual realities that concerned it. He said, don't you know that you, uh, as many of us as were baptised into Christ, were baptised into his death? Baptised into his death. This is really interesting because you say, oh, well, I'm still alive. How am I baptised into his death? Let's make sense of this. In, let's go back before we come back here. We'll go back. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul uses this expression. He's talking about the body of Christ. And we know that Christ is the head and we're the body, right? And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul would write as he speaks to the, to the believers, he says these words in verse 13, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now, he's not talking about water baptism. But water baptism is, significant, is, is symbolic of this. 
He says, you were by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We've all been made to drink into one spirit. But we were all baptized into one body. Were. Again, past tense. So this is important because remember I said to you earlier, the antitype of Moses and the Red Sea. And the scripture said that they were all baptized into Moses. They were baptized into Moses. And you know what? For the Christian now, we're not baptized into Moses. We are baptized into Christ. We are now baptized in Christ. We are now one with Christ. We are in union. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so now we have this reality. We have been baptized into Christ. And this is the foundation of the gospel and understanding the gospel message. This is important to understand what water baptism is. Look at verse 3 again. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ? He doesn't say water baptized. He says we were baptized into Christ. You see, because that is the real thing that's going on. That's why when Jesus spoke about baptizing them in water, he had something far deeper and far more superior that he was thinking of in relation to baptism. That was only an outward form. But as a result of the preaching of the gospel, as a result of being born again, Jesus understood it exactly and he wanted to set up water baptism as, a, as, as an outward testimony of what had happened to you internally. So he, he, he says, Paul, that you were, in verse 3, do you not know that many of us as were baptised into Christ were baptised into his death? <clears throat> were baptised into his death. Now think about that. What happens in water baptism? You know, it's not, again, it's not a sprinkling of the water. Okay? To baptise means to dip. And so when in baptism, you get in the water and then you are dipped in the water and then you come out of the water and everyone says, praise the Lord. <laughs> now, what does all that mean? You were baptized into his death. And so the, the, in going into the water is symbolic of going into the grave. You are identifying with Christ now and you identifying with his death because what how are we identifying with his death see this in this manner Jesus died for what sin he died for our sins and so when we are identifying with Christ and we are baptized into his death then we are being baptized into Christ and he who knew no sin uh, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So all of a sudden now sin, not just our sins that we have committed but also the fact of, of um, just in simple context of our nature so we have been, because the Bible tells us we're dying, we're dead to sin. And so this is important for you to understand. And, and uh, uh, I pray that we would get an understanding and a revelation of what the scripture is telling us. You were baptized into his death, through, uh, buried with him through baptism. Buried with him through baptism. So we were buried with Christ. And the, the going into the water is symbolic of the old man and being dead to sin and forgiven of sins. So Jesus has died for our sins. We're baptized into his death. But notice also, and I just want to highlight this just so that you can understand it. Paul's not just talking about the fact that we have been forgiven of our sins, but the gospel uh, and the spirit and being in Christ is much, much more than just um, being forgiven of your sins. The gospel now empowers you to, by the grace of God, to live in dominion over sin. That's why in verse seven, um, listen, look, look at verse seven of chapter six. For he who has died, he who has died, that's past tense again, that's us, has been freed from sin. That's why it goes on to say, don't let sin have dominion over you because you are not under the law but under grace. So in other words, God grace, God's grace empowers you to be victorious over sin. 
not, it's not a license to sin. It's actually an empowering to live free and, and in dominion over sin in your life. So there's no excuse for us when we sin. I know we all sin and we've all sinned. Don't get me wrong. But this is the principle. This is the gold standard that is revealed to us in the scripture. And so I pray that you're understanding this point this morning. And so we were baptized into his death and being and, and, and it's like a grave that we have uh, in, in the physical sense when we go into the water. So look now at verse 4, because that's only one half of it. The death aspect is one, one aspect. Look at verse 4. So we were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. So Paul's reiterating it. But it, this was for a reason. This was for a purpose. And here's the purpose, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So in other words, the Bible tells us that we, as Christ was raised from the dead, you know, the, the gospel is this, Jesus Christ was died, he buried, was buried, and he was resurrected, he, and he rose the third day. We identify with Christ in the fact that now we identify with his death, we identify uh, with his burial, the old man has been done away with, Romans chapter 6, verse 6, and, and now we identify with his resurrection because the Bible says that we have been raised with Christ. This is in Ephesians chapter 2. It talks about this. And so now we are identifying with the resurrection. So when we come up out of the water... We're symbolically saying that I am dead to sin. I have been. I'm, I, I have been. Uh, I have died with Christ. I have been buried, in, uh, baptized into His death, and I come out of the water, and that is symbolic of a newness of life, life in Christ Jesus, and this is the the life that we now live. And the Bible speaks of it and says that as uh, as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even now, so should we walk in this newness of life. Now you have to begin to live and walk as a Christian. Now as a disciple of Jesus Christ, having obeyed the command to be water baptised, now you must seek to follow his other commands and his other instructions in terms of obedience and seeking to please him out of a love and a desire to do his will. Even so, we should walk in the newness of life. See, are we walking in this newness of life? This is a spiritual reality. 2 Corinthians, again, a familiar scripture, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is, say it. Oh. I thought he got there. <laughs> but you know it anyway. If anyone is in Christ. In Christ, because you were baptized into his death, you were buried with him in baptism, and now you are raised with him, hallelujah, and seated in heavenly places, the Bible tells us. And so therefore walk practically. Let your life reflect the spiritual reality of your life, practically speaking. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And so now, walk in the newness of life. Begin to, the, the past is gone. The past has been forgiven. You are now sanctified. You are set apart. You are holy. You are now justified and declared righteous in the sight of God. And this is something that has taken place when you were born again. When you had, that's why Jesus said, unless a person is born from above, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. And, it's, and when you were spiritually reborn, something happened unto us internally. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so after your spiritual rebirth, this is where you were baptized into Christ, right there and then, when you were born again. That's what happened. And you were all of a sudden, in an instance, you identified with his death, you identified with his burial, and you identified with his resurrection and eternal life. Amen. Not only did you receive it, but now you possess it. It is in you. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. 
And so now I get water baptised simply as a reflection of what has already happened to me. And that's why it, uh, water baptism is, a, is to be emphasised. That's why it's required. Because Jesus isn't just thinking of the, 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 the literal aspect of the water baptism. He's extremely mindful of the spiritual reality associated with it. And so too must we be. Are you following me this morning? We're born again. We're born of the Spirit. We are to live and walk in the Spirit, not the flesh. Look at verse um, 5 of Romans 6. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, which we have, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And that is the, the, the life of God. In Adam, we are dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. But in Christ, we have been made alive. You are alive to God. And live and walk in that newness of life is what the Bible's telling us. And so when you consider baptism, it is incorporated in all of these things. And so in light of that, I hope and pray this morning that it sheds light on why Jesus would refer to water baptism in the Great Commission. Think about it. I mean, you know, people don't put that much emphasis on the water baptism, but Jesus did. He gave it in the Great Commission. And we saw it in the book of Acts, how prominent it was and how immediate it was after one's salvation. And so too, that's how we should be endeavouring to, as a church to practice that. And as, a, as individuals, if, uh, my question to you are, you, are you born again? And if you are, what's hindering you from being baptised? Because if you haven't been water baptised, my, my, the instruction of the Lord, not my words, but the Lord's word is to be baptised. Be baptised. That's the command of God. And as a true disciple of Jesus Christ, he loves the Lord and wants to obey God, then, then I'll be baptised. It's, like it's part of the gospel message this morning. It's the first step of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. See, my command from the Lord is to go and make disciples and, and baptise them. So it's my responsibility to preach the gospel, preach baptism and baptise those being converted. But the question is to us this morning, who needs to be baptised? Is there anyone here who is delayed for whatever reason? If there's anyone here that wants to be baptised, is there anyone here that needs to be baptised? Or in hearing this in your heart, you say, yes, I think I'm, it's time. I, I want to be baptised. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I understand. I want to be baptised. Then I encourage you this morning. Come and speak to Pastor Werner and myself, and uh, we can organise that and work towards the 28th of March where we'll have a water baptism. God bless you all this morning. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, for the clarity that we find in your word. God, in relation to the issue of water baptism, God, I pray that we would uh, uh, endeavour to preach it as it is revealed in your word. Give it the prominence that it deserves, Lord, as part of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray that you would minister to hearts. And if there are those, Lord, present with us who are not baptised, who would like to be baptised, then stir their hearts, Lord. Speak unto them, I pray, and bless your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all.